The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. Tisha Gleaver had good morning and welcome. Morning. Uh, so many things on the agenda. Let's talk about uh, the ongoing housing crisis and how uh, that is being exacerbated really by the number of uh, refugees, both Ukrainians and international uh, protection seekers who are coming to the country. Is it an insoluble problem? Um, no, I don't believe so. And um, I, I, I think we need to be careful not to be blaming the, the housing crisis on, on people coming into the country. That's, no, I know does, it's not what you meant. But, it adds um, the but numbers. That's it, it, the point. It, it certainly makes, makes it more difficult to solve. And, and, you know, the backdrop to the housing crisis is a rapidly increasing population, smaller households, uh, an economy that's, that's, that's booming. Um, and then a prolonged period of time where there was very little new housing construction um, and we're really catching up from that. Um, but we are seeing some real progress. Um, we don't, we have the figures in just last week, um, nearly 30,000 new homes built in Ireland last year. Uh, that's the highest number since the Celtic Tiger era. Um, and But um, equally, we saw the prediction that we might need anywhere from 42,000 to 62,000 going forward by 2050 in order to cope with the, the statistical mm-hmm. prediction of a, of a population. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. 30,000 is great, but it's not enough. It, it, it isn't enough. And, you know, what's in Housing for All, which is the government's housing policy, it's to ramp up to about 40,000 a year um, by the end of the decade. And we want to ramp up um, as quickly as possible. And the target uh, for this year is another 30,000 houses, 29,000 technically. Um, I'd like to exceed that. And we're doing everything we can now at government to work out if there are things we can do to increase supply. Supply on its own won't solve the problem, but we're not going to solve the problem without more supply. If we were to have another 70,000 people arriving in 2023 as arrived in 2022, Mm. what then? But, you know, that, that picture does make things more difficult. Um, we have people arriving from Ukraine, as you know. Um, we have people uh, arriving, seeking international protection, roughly a thousand a month. Um, we have 30,000 Irish citizens who come back to Ireland every year. Mm-hmm. Um, people leave as well, but for the last three years, more Irish citizens coming home than than leaving. And then we have people from other parts of the European Union um, who... Uh, could go anywhere, Barcelona, Amsterdam, Berlin, yeah. you name it, but they choose to come to Ireland uh, largely because the economic opportunities are very good here. And of course, all of that puts a lot of pressure on our housing system. And that's why we need to do everything we can to uh, ramp up supply of new homes, uh, bring derelict disused properties yeah. back into use, um, invest in student accommodation, uh, all of those things. Now, what about reception centres for refugees coming in? We have the one in City West, uh, this uh, talk of using some perhaps available government buildings to create more reception centres? Uh, well, it's, it's acknowledged that just having City West isn't going to be adequate and that we're going to need um, perhaps two more additional reception centres around the country. And uh, we're trying to identify um, sites and places for that. Um, you'll recall the report that was done by Catherine Day and others uh, some time ago now as to how we could end direct provision and still government's policy to end, end direct provision. Um, that's obviously going to be a lot harder to but do. But a lot of people in, in direct provision, I was reading this morning, are uh, free to stay here wherever they want, but they've chosen because mm. of a lack of uh, available housing to stay in direct provision, even though they could be supplying their own housing, working in jobs and so on. But there's no way out of direct provision for them. No availability. Yes. Yeah, so, so there's about 5,000 people, I think, who are currently uh, living in direct provision centres who have the legal status. They're, they're free to stay in Ireland um, and they haven't moved out. Um, and so what do you do about that? Well, th- well we're, we're, I suppose we're doing different things. I think it's important not, not to 
blame them as such. You know, in some cases, they just can't afford to move out. They might be on social welfare. They might be on low incomes. They are entitled to HAP, of course, and homeless HAP, but there are difficulties finding properties for anyone uh, at the moment who's on HAP or even homeless HAP. Um, but there are others who, you know, for example, um, might have decent incomes, but um, are sending the money back home rather than spending yeah. it on, on rent. So, you know, we can't just treat everyone uh, as though, the, though they're the same. Everyone has an individual case. Should but, it be all time limited though? Because this is one of the things with Ukrainian refugees. There's a report uh, from the Department of Children looking at how other European countries are hmm. doing it and the question of time limiting uh, entitlements so that people who might be reluctant to, to have a go in the economy, you know, surviving, hmm. um, might be <laughs> encouraged, shall we say, to have a go rather than being let be. Yeah, we have to be careful about all these things. You know, um, we don't want people, uh, you know, to to stay living in hotels or living in B&Bs or living in direct provision when they could potentially move on and um, uh, uh, get employment and and rent as huge numbers of people do. Um, But at the same time, we don't want to be so harsh that we push people into homelessness or put them in a situation where they have no roof over their head. So, you know, modulating that is, is sure, a real challenge. Sure, we're going to lose hotel accommodation. I'm just wondering, you know, the uh, the very model of hotel accommodation, we have used it for our own homeless families uh, and the idea of using hotels generally uh, in an emergency for Ukraine, absolutely uh, vital and uh, hugely important. But it's not the way to go. I mean, is there a model from this report in the Department of Children? Is there a, a model elsewhere in Europe that works better for the economy and for the incomers? Well, you know, unfortunately, everyone uh, across Europe is dealing with the same problems. Um, we have millions of people who have been forced to leave Ukraine uh, seeking shelter across Europe. And across Europe, there's been a threefold increase in the number of people, uh, not from Ukraine, but are from other parts of the world and looking international protection, looking for inter- international protection. And sadly, what you see in, in large parts of Europe, you know, are our camps. You know, you've seen the camps in France, you've seen the camps in Greece, you've seen the fact in the Netherlands that um, uh, people have no shelter at all. And we've had uh, a taste of that in, in recent weeks in, in Ireland. So, you know, there's no model that's perfect across Europe, not when we're dealing with the kind of numbers that we're dealing with. And uh, just, just to look at it this way, let, let's say, for example, two years ago, uh, we had amazing foresight and we uh, thought that Vladimir Putin might invade Ukraine and that 100,000 people might come to Ireland. And we decided to build a city the size of Waterford with 20,000 houses and apartments just in case. Um, that will be full now given the numbers of people that have come. So this is an unprecedented crisis. Europe hasn't seen anything like this since the Second Second World War. Um, Ireland uh, has not seen anything like this ever in our history. And what we're endeavouring to do is the best we can to provide people with shelter, Um, provide them with heat and light, with um, healthcare, education, employment in many cases. What is your reaction to what happened at Ashton where men with dogs and baseball bats uh, appeared to attack uh, people who were homeless living in what was Mm -hmm. a, a tented village? Well, very disturbing. Um, uh, obviously, I've, I've heard the reports uh, in the media. I, I don't have a report from the Garda yet, but I am going to seek one. Um, so, you know, I, I'm always reluctant to comment on something without knowing knowing the full facts. But um, it, it has the the feel and look of uh, essentially a racist attack. Yeah. These are, you know, people who are foreigners, um, um, people who... Um, we're sleeping rough. It is the case that at least up until it very seems recently. that this attack was organised through social media. You know, people, you know, make sure you have your dog, make sure you have mm-hmm. your baseball bat or whatever. It's the kind of thing that Nazi Germany would have been familiar with. And we don't want that here. 
Absolutely not. And I think it requires a full investigation by the Gardaí and uh, is something that I'm going to pursue with them. Mm. Uh, moving on to, to health, we've been talking about a shortage of, of medicines. Just to follow up on that, is the government going to intervene to try and make medicines uh, maybe slightly more profitable for the people who are supplying generics to the GMS in order to restore supply? Um, it, it is it is a problem, as you know, that there's a shortage of some medicines. In the vast majority of cases, it's possible to secure supplies or uh, substitute um, one medicine for another, which has the same therapeutic effect. Um, but we are working on this at a European level as to how we can increase supply uh, and obviously engaging with the industry on that. It doesn't necessarily mean um, more profits uh, for the industry or, or, or higher margins, but it does mean... Um, but if, if that's chains. the root cause of not getting medicines in because they can flog them to mm. uh, Germany or the UK and get a better price for their generics, then they will so do. Yeah, you know, I, I'm not convinced it is the, the root cause. Um, and a lot of people listening will know that medicines are often cheaper in other parts of Europe sure. than, than they are here. Um, not as true as it used to be in the past, but uh, you can still get a lot of medicines cheaper in other parts of Europe. What we are, though, is at the end of a supply chain. Uh, and also the fact that Britain has left the European Union has complicated things in and around the English no. language labelling. Um, but something obviously that we are we are working on. Um, speaking of uh, the complications of Brexit, uh, you made a remark to the BBC recently that you regret uh, that the protocol was uh, done in the way it was without bringing unionists and nationalists mm. on board. I mean, the yeah. nationalists were on board by and large, but not the unionists. Well, I think what we need to acknowledge at the outset is that the protocol was a response to Brexit. Um, it is working. Uh, there's no hard border between North and South. The European single market has been protected. The Northern Ireland economy is outperforming um, the rest of the UK. Um, but it has created some difficulties. Um, and when I talk to business people in Northern Ireland, they would talk about some of those difficulties. None of them want to get rid of the protocol, by the way, but they do want it modified and, and improved. Um, but I think one of the difficulties with the protocol is that when it was agreed by the EU, by the Irish government, by the UK, there was no Northern Ireland executive. There was no Northern Ireland assembly. So um, it had to be agreed without um the executive or, 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 or the assembly in place to consult. And we're still in that situation. Um, we are. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, I would, why I would like to see the, the executive and assembly up and running so that instead of talking to five parties who speak for their voters, we would actually have a first minister, a deputy first minister, an economy minister, you know, people who could legitimately say that they're the elected representatives to speak on but behalf of the But we'd have two Ireland. people, the deputy uh, minister, first minister and the, the first minister are supposed to be equal, the, mm. the first minister being primus inter pares, but still they would agree, uh, disagree vehemently with each other. So it mightn't be much of a help. I, I think it'd be better than not having an executive and assembly. But, um, you know, one, one thing we will try to do as we... Um, negotiate solutions to the protocol as we will do our very best uh, to um, get as broad support as possible for any changes. How quickly might that be done? I mean, in time for the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, is is that an ambition or a, a real possibility? Um, I think it's fair to say it's an ambition, but it's not a hard deadline. Uh, you know, I think we would all like to be um, celebrating the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement uh, at a time when the institutions, the Assembly Executive, North-South bodies are all up and running. But I still think it's worth marking and celebrating anyway. We've had 25 years of peace in Ireland as a result of the Good Friday Agreement. Um, it's still worth celebrating. Um, and of course, it'd be nice to have a, an agreement in place by then, but it's not, it's not a hard mm. deadline. Now, back to the Department of Health. And there was a story in the Mail on Sunday yesterday, which I'm sure you saw, mm. which seems to implicate uh, serial ministers 
ministers for health, including yourself and Michal Martin, so Tisha Gantonishta, in um, a stealth memo which said, mm. look, people who are entitled to, to get free nursing home care uh, paid for it. If any of them sue, just settle uh, because we don't want this to become a bushfire. That's that's putting it in a very quick shorthand. Yeah, that's that's the certainly the, the innu- innuendo. Um that was the story. I mean, big story. Yeah, yeah I, I saw the story and um, we got a query about it on Friday and over the weekend have been trying to get the facts from the Department of Health and from the AG's office. So it is being... Um, but did you get into. that stealth memo? Oh, no. And actually, if you read the article, it doesn't say I did. Um, it, 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 so this relates to a 2011 memo, which was... Uh, it would appear circulated to four, mem- four members. And this would have been Health Minister James Riley. Um, none of the people are current in the current government. Um, I, I, I understand we're on the distribution list this memo. So as far as I, I know, um, I, I haven't seen it and, and didn't at the time, but we're, we're trying to check out all those facts. Um, but I think what is fair to say is that the true picture is going to be a lot more com- complex and different from how it was presented. In They're the talking article. about billions of euro that yeah. might be uh, necessary to compensate people for bills they yeah. paid and should not have paid. Yeah, so, so this, is, this is a memo from uh, 12 years ago it would appear um, talks about contingent liabilities that never arose so it, it said for example that the compensation cost um, for the public nursing homes would be 5 billion it actually came out of 450 it was 9% of that figure so you know th- those figures are, are not figures that uh, are in any way still valid um, what it seems to relate to is nursing home charges prior to the fair deal so these would, would have been people who paid yeah. for private nursing homes um, but they had examples of hard cases you know someone who's paying for their elderly mother yeah. and they themselves becoming mm-hmm. elderly in the process and being beggared by the fees yeah so my understanding and like I say this is all pre-2009 there hasn't been a case since 2014 uh, lodged with the department and this is only my initial understanding we have asked the department and the AG to look into it is that it relates to people who paid for private nursing homes uh, and they argued that because they had a medical card, um, they were entitled to a full refund of the cost, regardless of the cost or regardless of which nursing home they chose. The state has never conceded that. Um, but there have been some cases that, that have been settled and it will be the case from time to time that government departments will. You've no doubt we're going cases. to hear a lot more about um, this. But they're not all settled and there was never yeah. there was never a, a test case yeah. that went to trial. So, uh, look, it needs to be looked into properly. Yeah. Um, but I think it's fair to say that um, the way it was presented uh, on Sunday is, is is the real picture is a lot more okay, complex well, than that. Obviously, and, and certainly what I can say, I was never I was never um, party to uh, devising or agreeing a legal strategy in relation to nursing home charges. Uh, the other health story over the weekend was about Tony Holland's job in Trinity College and the investigation. And it would appear that uh, Stephen Donnelly has had the report on his desk for several months now and has not published it. Uh, and there's resistance from within the Department of Health to its publication. Um, well, what's happened is the report uh, has been uh, distributed uh, by Minister Donnelly to um, the people concerned. Uh, and as is right and proper, due process all of those important things uh, they're now being given a response uh, you know an opportunity to respond to what's in the report before it'll be published and it is intended to publish it it is intended to publish it yes Um, moving on to something uh, completely different and that is about the Pope Pope Francis and uh, you as a a European leader and a gay man what did you think about the Pope's comments on homosexuality I I think it was very welcome Um, I think uh, Pope Francis is a very progressive Pope Uh, he believes in 
a church that, that is open to people. Um, and um, I think often he's pushing back against other forces within the church, within the Catholic Church that are much more conservative. And I think his comments were, you know, extremely welcome and sent a message out to bishops across the world that they should uh, welcome LGBT people and sent a message to governments across the world that criminalising gay people is wrong. And bear in mind, there are still 70, 80 countries in the world where it's illegal to be gay. And having um, the Catholic Church, which is a powerful force in some of those countries, uh, saying that this is wrong, uh, really is an important statement and is is very, very welcome. Yeah. Now, he, he did nuance things. Mm-hmm. He said that uh, homosexuality is not a criminal offence. But mm-hmm. then he, he talked about the Catholic Church's moral teaching about sin. Yeah. But he also nuanced it by saying that, you know, sex outside of marriage mm-hmm. is a sin. Yeah. By definition. And, and that is Catholic teaching, um, you know, is that uh, sex outside of marriage is a sin. Um, and I think it's important that we respect religion. And that is the religious view of um, the Catholic Church. Um, um, but, you know, and I would never ask people to change their religious beliefs or religious affiliations. But the position he's... I think trying to bring the church to and the faith to is one of tolerance, is one of love, is one of saying that, um, you know, that, that that there's a difference between uh, between ha- ha- how you treat, how you look at sin and, and, and sinners. And um, I, 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 so, I, so you believe it's an important thing that he distinguished between, you know, the civil mm-hmm. law, criminality, saying this is not. Yeah, I, I, I and do. And should not I do. be a crime. I do, and I, I think that's a very important message, um, not so much in, in Europe, but in large parts of the world where um, being gay is still a crime, um, where the church has a lot of influence and a lot of power, um, and sending that message out to bishops across the world that they should, they should welcome people. And in some parts of the, the world, of course, where the church is competing with Islam, for example, mm-hmm. that might not be a popular message for bishops to hear. No, and that's correct. And I think that's why the Pope um, has been very brave. You know, we can often look at things from our point of view here in Europe, uh, here in Ireland, uh, from from a very liberal prism. But bear in mind that the Church is a worldwide organisation um, and values are very conservative in some parts of the world, in Africa and Latin America and Asia, for example. And, you know, the Pope has to deal with people within the church who are much more conservative than, than him. And I think when you see a Pope making a statement like this, doing something that I think is very progressive, that is very Christian, uh, that we should welcome that and maybe not quibble with, with some of the detail around it. Um, moving on to, uh, we had the unedifying spectacle of uh, Postergate and then the response and how uh, other parties, notably Sinn Féin, were uh, guilty of other things. And I don't want to rehearse that. We've gone through it many, many times. But the prospect of Sinn Féin in government, we're told that were there to be United Ireland tomorrow, Sinn Féin would be the biggest party. And numerically, I suppose you can do the sums that would make uh, perfect sense. But the idea that within your own government at the moment, uh, Eamon Ryan, the leader of the Green Party, did not rule out Sinn Féin. He said he would go anyone with a climate agenda and Sinn Féin would have to change Mm. much of their views. But within your own party, you've got people who'd ally with Sinn Féin to form a government. Fianna Fáil, who knows? It would um, leave Fine Gael as possibly the only party who would not form an alliance with Sinn Féin. Well, you know, that that is our party position and it's um, there for a very good reason, not just about their past or their ethics or, or their you know, alleged links to, to, to criminal activity, for example, it's um, it's about what they would do in the future. It's about their economic policies, which are anti-enterprise, anti-business. It's about their European policies. They are 
a Eurosceptic, Eurocritical party, to use their, their language. But to hear Eamon um, Ryan yesterday talking about, you know, that they are pro-business now, they believe in lower uh, business taxes and, and so on. It, it may not mm. be historically what they believed, but uh, they seem to be kind of watching the way the wind blows and, you know, what gets you elected. Yeah, I, I don't think... Sinn Féin is in favour of lower taxes for business. They're in favour low of taxes, high, not high, lower high. than we are. But well, their policy is to increase employers' PSI by by forty percent uh, and to impose higher income taxes on um, skilled people who can take their skills and jobs elsewhere. So I'm not sure if that's that's what he said. But but look, the focus of the government isn't on the next election. The next election is two years away or more um, or less. You yourself have suggested, I think, that it could be in the autumn of 2024. Uh, well, I reported as having suggested that, yeah. But Did look, you or didn't the, you? Look, there, there's no, no date decided for the next election. And no, 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 I'm this not this saying it was decided. Not going to be an election but year. you're saying that it would might be a possibility that it could be, rather than go to the wire, I mean, uh, various Taoiseach over the years hmm. have gone to the wire uh, to their own regret. You know, when you've left yeah. with no choice as to when to have an election. Yeah, of course, it's a possibility, but there's no decisions um, made on that regard now. And obviously anything, it's the progress of the Taoiseach to seek the dissolution of the doll. But obviously I wouldn't be doing that without consulting with our coalition partners. Um, but that's not our focus at the moment. You know, our focus is on government, um, is on uh, turning around the housing crisis, helping people and businesses with the cost of living, um, making sure that we have stronger, safer communities. I've put a particular priority around uh, child poverty and well-being. Um, and obviously uh, pursuing the, the climate action and that's that's the absolute focus of government at the moment it's not on the date of the election or yeah. an electoral strategy this stage. I remember when this government was formed and uh, I was saying uh, to the listeners you know it's a no-brainer all this government have got to do is sort out health <laughs> and not an easy thing to do sort out housing and uh, they'll have a fair win behind them then the pandemic came along now to what extent was the government thwarted by the pandemic and having to cope with that? Or would it have been any different? Would we still have the trolley crisis year in, year out, as we've had for over a decade? I, I think all of these challenges would still exist. Um, the pandemic definitely disrupted things. Um, you know, we've seen the impact that it's had on the health service uh, in the last couple of months with three viruses essentially to deal with and, um, uh, and people having less immunity and reduced immunity as a consequence of the the, the the lockdown periods uh, and then a lot of un, unmet health needs so look it's definitely made things harder um one thing we need to bear in mind um that happened during the pandemic is construction was stopped for prolonged periods so you know there were there were thousands of houses that might have been built during that period that we don't now have available to us so it's definitely made things harder but um those problems were there before the pandemic as you've pointed out um again and again we hear lots of complaints about the government that's uh, normal but it would i su- su- suggest to you uh, be a very uphill battle to get re-elected as a government look it's always it's always difficult in uh, uh, for, for governments to, to get to get re-elected and um certainly um having been a td who's been elected on four occasions now um it, it's harder as an incumbent than it is as opposition um and, and you know i've i've been on both those sides um but i i believe it is possible for this government to get elected um and you have Three parties, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and the Greens, working very well together. Um, I don't read too much into opinion polls because they certainly didn't predict the last election or the one before it. Um, but even if you do look at the polls, um, the three parties combined uh, generally have well over 40%. Um, 50%, of course, is the magic figure. And I think there's a good chance that we can be re-elected. Mm-hmm. But the best way of getting re-elected is to deal with the problems that people care about. Um, and that is helping with the cost of living, mm-hmm. 
trying to turn around the situation in relation to housing, reforming our health service, uh, making sure that we have strong and safe communities. And that's the focus of the government at the moment. Um, finally, we know that um, we don't encourage our presidents to intervene in matters of policy. But recently, the uh, president suggested that no homework is the way forward for primary school children. What say you? Um, I guess I'd have to talk to Minister Foley about that. <laughs> we haven't had a chance to, to discuss it. Um, I think definitely kids can have too much homework. Uh, you know, you could have a long day in class, uh, get home in the early evening and then face, you know, three hours of homework. I remember that when I was a kid, um, you know, staying up very late to do homework. So uh, I think there's definitely a place for homework, but um, we need to make sure that there isn't too much of it. And you don't mind the president intervening in this kind of debate? No, it's not. Pre- president's contributions are, are always welcome. Tisha Clear thank you very much for joining us in the studio this morning. Thank you. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9 a.m. on News Talk.